wonderful pastor, speaker, author. For 30 years, uh, he was the pastor of Elmbrook Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin. When he became the pastor in 1970, the congregation was a pretty good-sized congregation. They had 300 people. But um, it is now a church of 7,000 people with multiple churches that they've started in the Milwaukee, Wisconsin area. Became the largest church in Wisconsin. He stepped down as senior pastor in 2000 and began to minister to pastors and missionaries and write books. He wrote over 40 books um, during his ministry time. He spent time teaching. Uh, he had a media ministry called Telling the Truth, and I understand you can still hear that ministry going on, Telling the Truth. Born the same year as my dad, 1930, 91 when he passed away because his birthday was in November. He would be 92 this year. In one of the messages that he shared years ago, he talked about his own life. He came from Europe, started out in the banking business before he became a pastor. And he wrote, years ago when I was a young banker, we used big leather ledgers where all accounts were entered by hand. I remember daydreaming about those ledgers and about God's ledgers in heaven. We are told those books will be open. I imagine my name, David Stewart Briscoe, and God adding up the sum total of my indebtedness against him. I could never cancel the overwhelming indebtedness. In my mind's eye, I saw God take his pen and transfer the sum of my indebtedness to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ. On the account of the Lord Jesus, he wrote, transferred from the account of David Stuart Briscoe. I thought God was finished, but then I saw him do something incredible. He added up the total righteousness of Christ and against it wrote these words, transferred to the account of David Stuart Briscoe. That's love. That's amazing grace. I share that story in light of the fact that we are jumping back into 1 John chapter 2 this morning. A mes message written by John, the son of Zebedee, in his old age. A message written to be circulated to the church in Asia Minor at the close of the first century A.D., He's writing to remind the believers that the gospel was founded on Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected and being born again by the power of the Spirit. He was writing to oppose some false teaching that had infiltrated the church by teachers puffed up with their pseudo-knowledge. They had a better gospel a cleaner gospel, a gospel that was all in your head so that this body that was irredeemable, according to them, could do whatever it wanted to do, and you would still be right with God. He's writing to bring them back to where they started, back to the message that Jesus gave to John and commissioned him and the others to go preach this to the world.
Last Sunday, we read the first six verses of chapter 2, and it starts out this way in verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. How many can spell propitiation this week? I told you the spelling chest. Those are the only two verses that we took time to kind of break apart last Sunday morning. We read six verses, but I didn't get to all six of them. And at the onset, I said that in those six verses, John gave us at least three characteristics of an authentic Christian. How you know that you are really born again. In contrast to the false teaching that was being propagated in Ephesus at that point in time. We said, number one, authentic Christians know who Jesus is. They know who Jesus is. That's important because that false doctrine was claiming that Jesus could not have been the Son of God. But he is, letter A, he is Jesus. You say, yeah, well, yeah, really. Jesus, that tells us what his mission was. Jesus means he came to save us from our sins. That's what Jesus is, Savior. One that comes to Savior. Not only is he Jesus, but he has the title of Christ. So properly, it should be his Christ Jesus. But we call him Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. That's what, that's what Christ means, the Anointed One, the one that God promised from the very beginning in the book of Genesis that there would be a Redeemer come. He would come from heaven. And he's Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ who has absolutely no sin. Sinless. Sinless. That's so important. Sinless. It's his righteousness that qualified him to be our lawyer, to be our advocate, to stand before God. As Satan accuses us, Our lawyer stands and said, I paid for that. I paid for that. I transferred that to my account is the way Briscoe said it. Number two, authentic Christians trust what Christ did. They trust what Christ did. He became our propitiation. That means the one who turns away the wrath of God by taking away our sin. He took away our sin. He took away the wrath of God. I repeat what Stuart Briscoe said. I saw God take his pen, transfer the sum total of my indebtedness to the account of Lord Jesus Christ. On the account of Lord Jesus Christ, he wrote, transferred from the account of David Stuart Briscoe. I thought God was finished, but then I saw him do something incredible. He added up the total righteousness of Christ, and again, he wrote these words, transferred to the account of David Stuart Briscoe. I repeat that because I want you to get that picture in your mind. I probably should have put it on a visual. But my sins are gone. Not because of anything I did, except believe in Jesus Christ and the fact he died for me. It is our dependence upon what he did that gives us peace with God this morning. Well, thank God. 
thank God for the peace of God. To be able to live without guilt and condemnation. To live with that blessing. To know that I am accepted in the family of God. Washed by the precious blood of Jesus. Our propitiation. One of the points we made last week. God paid our penalty. God paid our penalty. We were guilty without any hope. But God himself paid our penalty. He paid it in full. He paid it in full. And just to make sure we get this in our brain, I want you to write one more word on the next blank. It's complete. When he said it is finished, he really meant it. It is complete. It is paid in full. Because Jesus died, as I prayed during our communion time, it is possible for every human being to be saved. There is enough power in that sacrifice if only men will repent and call on the name of Jesus Christ. The grace of God, it blows my mind. His forgiveness is so great. There are people, and you could be one of them, who have a major sin in their life, not just a little screw-up, but a big one. And they, they hear in their head a message like this one, and there's a voice that says, you're too bad of a sinner. You can't go to heaven. Satan tells you, your sin's too much. What John is wanting us to understand is Jesus Christ. You can take all the sins of the world, stack them up on a pile, and God's forgiveness is greater than all our sin. God's grace is greater than all our sin. Thank God. Thank God. There is nothing that you have done that God cannot Forgive in a moment of confession. You say, what about the unpardonable sin? The unpardonable sin is not confessing and not believing in Jesus Christ. The only sin that can't be forgiven is not accepting Jesus Christ. Not listening to the Holy Spirit who says to you, you need to be saved. Thank God that failure doesn't disqualify me from the kingdom. Because Jesus' grace is greater than my sin. So John tells us in the first verse, make it your aim not to sin. Now that you're forgiven, make it your aim not to sin anymore. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. That you may not sin. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Pursuit of Holiness, wrote these words. The whole purpose of John's letter, he says, is that we not sin. Jerry goes on to say, one day as I was studying this chapter, I realized that my personal life's objective regarding holiness was less than that of John's. He was saying, in fact, make it your aim not to sin. As I thought about it, Jerry said, I realized that deep within my heart, my real aim was not to sin very much. (laughs) 
Can we relate? My aim was not to sin very much. I found it difficult to say, Yes, Lord, from here on I will make it my aim not to sin. He goes on to say, I realized God was calling me that day to a deeper level of commitment to holiness than I had previously been willing to make. The next paragraph he wrote in this book, Can you imagine a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much? He said the very suggestion is ridiculous. His aim is not to get hit at all. Yet, if we have not made a commitment to holiness without exception, we are like a soldier going into battle with the aim of not getting hit very much. We can be sure that if our aim, if that is our aim, we will be hit. Not with bullets, but with temptation over and over again. Jonathan Edwards, one of the great preachers of the early American history and one of the leaders in one of the great awakenings in this nation, used to make resolutions. And I put this resolution in your notes. He said, resolved, never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Dare we modern day Christians make that kind of resolution? Are we willing to commit ourselves to holiness without exception. There's no point in praying, lead me not into temptation, if not willing to make a commitment to say no. You will all be tempted. It's common to man. But God has provided a way to escape it, Paul said. His job is provide a way. What's your job? Take the way. Take the way. So with those words, we go on to verse 3. And by this, we know that we've come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Point number three, authentic Christians do what Christ commands. Authentic Christians do what Christ commands. In verses three and five, he says, by this we know we've come to know Jesus. By this we know that we are in him. We keep his commands. We walk the same walk that Jesus walked. We live the same kind of life that Jesus lived. Letter A, perfect obedience to his word is the evidence of a perfect love for him. Perfect obedience to his word is the evidence of a perfect love for him. Jesus speaking to the disciples in the upper room on the night before the crucifixion, John 14. 
said in verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. You want to be closer to Jesus? Do what Jesus says. And he says he'll manifest himself to you. Verse 23, the same chapter. If anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him, will come to him, and will make our home with him. He who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Obedience to the word. Jesus himself was perfect in his example of how this is lived out. In verse 31 of the 14th chapter, Jesus says this about himself. The world must learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Remember, we're going to walk the walk that he walked. He said, I do exactly what my Father's commanded me. In John chapter 8, verse 29, he said, The one who sent me is with me. He's not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. Back in John chapter 4, when he went to Sychar in the well and spoke to the women who had five husbands and said, if you knew who I was, you'd want to drink the water that I can give you, living water, and you'll never thirst again. And, and when it's all said and done, she embraces that and goes and tells the rest of the community, come and see this man, and a three-day revival takes place. But in between her going and the disciples had gone to buy Jesus lunch, and he brings back lunch, and he says, no, thank you. I'm full. What'd you eat? Verse 34, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. Jesus' heart as a human being, a man, he was here as fully man, fully God and fully man, but the man side of him lived to please the Father. To obey the Father. John says that as a Christian in relationship with the Father, our heart's desire should be to please the Father, to obey His commands, to obey His word. You see, grace does not abolish God's law. It does not abolish God's law. It internalizes it by writing it in our hearts. It internalizes it by writing it in our hearts. Johnny, behave. Thank you. That was a prophecy given by the prophets in the Old Testament. He said, there's coming a day when God is going to write my law on your hearts. Allow your hearts to be circumcised by the Holy Spirit, and I'll write my law on your hearts. That's why John says pretty strongly here, if you say, I know God, I'm in a relationship with God, but I'm willfully walking in disobedience, John says, you're a liar. Now remember, we read that in chapter 1 a few weeks ago. I told you that John, 
he writes in a circular way, like a spiral staircase. He keeps coming back to the same subject and expanding on it. And here again he says, if you say that you love God, but you continue to practice sin. Now this is important. We're all going to trip and sin on occasion. But because we love Jesus, we don't continue. We confess and we're cleansed. And everybody said, okay. But to walk willfully, I'm just deceiving myself and I'm a liar. I'm a liar. I'm a liar. We're walking in darkness, not in the light. So how are you doing this morning? Are you like the man in Psalms chapter 1, verse 2, who delights himself in the law of the Lord, who delights in pleasing the Father? Notice again verse 5. If anyone obeys the word, God's love is, in the NIV says, God's love is made complete in him. The ESV in the New King James says, the love of God is perfected in him. If anyone obeys the word, the love of God is perfected in him. In other words, there is a process that takes place that causes a Christian to mature, to grow up, to be more complete. Obedience is a key to that perfection. Obedience is a key to growing up. Obedience. You want God to reveal his will to you in any area of your life? A key to that revelation, a key to knowing the will of God is a determination in your heart beforehand Whatever it is, God, you want me to do, I will do it. Beforehand, what am I talking about? What we prefer, God, I want to know your will. But what I really want to know is what are my options? God, show me your will, and then we think we get a vote on it. Or we would like to vote on it. But the key to growing up is coming before the Lord with a heart that says, yes, even before I know what the Lord says to do. Yes. Yes. Reminds me of the football coach, first day of practice. He said, if I say jump, you ask how high on the way up. That's what he intended for the discipline for the football team. If I speak, you do it. Our heart was, whatever he says, we're going to do that. At least it was supposed to be. Our heart before God needs to be, whatever you say, God. Whatever you say. Verse 6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walk in the same way. As authentic Christians do what Christ commands, it means submission to his will. Submission to his will. The thing that characterized Jesus' life as a man showing us how to live was his absolute submission to the will of Father. 
It was prophesied 700 years, 800 years before he was born that that's the way he would live. In Psalms 40, verse 6, 7, and 8, we know that this is talking about Jesus because the book of Hebrews quotes it and attributes it to Jesus. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but my ears you have pierced, but my ears you have pierced burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not require. Then I said, Here I am, I have come. It is written about me in the scroll, I desire to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. As you read the Gospels, you cannot find a moment when Jesus was not in total submission to the will of the Father. From the time he was 12 years old, went with Mary and Joseph to Jerusalem, to the temple, where according to the law and custom, Jesus took his place as a son under the law. He became responsible to God the Father for his own life. Remember we read that Mary and Joseph, the other pilgrims, they left to go back to, to Nazareth, only to discover a couple days later that Jesus wasn't with them. Now, how would you like to explain that to God the Father? You lost his son. They beat feet back to Jerusalem. They find him. They find him in the temple speaking with the priests and the elders about the laws of God. And remember what Jesus said when they confronted him? How could you do this to us? Don't you realize I must be about my father's business? I must be about my father's business. That was his life. In John 6, 38, after the feeding of the 5,000, he says, For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In John 17, 4, that great high priestly prayer that he prays just before he goes to that place in Gethsemane and prays the other prayer that we'll talk about in a moment. He said, I, he said to the Father, I glorify you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And then going a little further, Matthew 26, 39, into that garden, he fell on his face and he prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. John 19, 30. When Jesus received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. What is finished? The plan. The plan. It's all paid for. It's signed, sealed, and delivered. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. He had completed everything that the Father had given him to do. His life was characterized by submission to the Father. If we are walking in fellowship, if we're walking in light with the Father, our lives will be characterized by our effort to walk as he walked. You see, divine fellowship results in corresponding action. Divine fellowship results in corresponding action. We will walk as he walked. James said it another way. You say you have faith. Faith without works is dead. 
When we're walking in fellowship, there's going to be corresponding action. There'll be corresponding acts. The test of authenticity of our faith in Christ is a growing love for God. And the ultimate proof of my maturing love for Christ, I'm going to be careful how I say this. Now I got your attention, don't I? That's on purpose. We have a tendency to measure our closeness to God by the height of emotion that we feel when we worship Him, when we sing songs, when we pray, when we hear the preacher preach. Those are wonderful feelings. I thank God that He made us creatures that have emotions and feelings. But I've watched people who've become very emotional in worship services and, and jump with joy or weep with joy. Or, and they get all excited, all emotional, all hyped up by the atmosphere. But our love for Christ is proved in the daily, detailed, disciplined obedience by which our characters are being transformed into the image of Jesus, whom we love. All the emotion that we can have in a worship service is in vain if I'm not walking in obedience to the Father. Daily, detailed, disciplined obedience. Our characters are being transformed in the image of Jesus. I want to back up to verse 5. Whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. I want to make sure that you don't come away feeling like I'm coming with a word of condemnation today. That's not at all my intention. I want you to see this. We are commanded to obey the word. Most of the commands that God gives us in the Scripture are surrounded by a promise. A promise of blessing. If I obey, there's going to be a blessing. If I do what God says, God doesn't give us commands to destroy our life. God gives us commands to enhance our life, to give us life to the full. King James says life abundantly. That's what Jesus came for. Obey the word. And the promise is the love of God will be perfected in us. The love of God will be made complete in us when I walk in obedience. The result of obeying God is a deeper awareness of his love. A deeper reciprocation of our love for him. The more I'm walking in obedience to the commands that God gave me and that Jesus gave me, the more meaningful and the more transformational it will be when I stand before the Lord and sing, I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul rejoice. 
The more I walk in obedience, the more meaningful that song will be because the deeper I'll understand the love of God for me and the deeper my love will be for Him. I hope you didn't get lost in that sentence. But embrace that. Obedience is the way to growth and maturity. Obedience is the way to growth and maturity. That's God's promise. That's God's promise. None of us are perfect. And if you think you're perfect, you're probably the most imperfect person in the room. We will not be perfect until we get to the other side. But the more we know the Lord, the more we love the Lord, the more we walk in obedience, the more perfect our obedience will be and the more perfect our love for him will be. Back to verse 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. To walk in the same way in which he walked. Remember the bracelets that came out a couple decades ago? WWJD? Lots of us had them. Or hats or shirts. WWJD? You remember what that meant? What would Jesus do? I think there were only a few who tried to do what Jesus literally did. And that was leave home and possessions and wander the countryside preaching sermons without any guarantee of having an income of any kind anywhere, healing people and casting out devils. Now, there were a few hippies that tried that. And I'm not diminishing what Jesus did in any way. But perhaps the more pertinent question for us in the culture today would be this. What would Jesus do if he were me? What would Jesus do if he were me? Let me expound on that just a little bit. Let's say you're a truck driver. Ask yourself, if Jesus were a truck driver, what kind of truck driver would he be? Would he obey the rules of the road? Would he keep his rig in safe operating condition? Would he stop to help other drivers? Would he toot his horn when the kids go like this when they go by? If Jesus were in middle management, what kind of middle manager would he be? Would he talk behind his boss's back? Would he make unreasonable demands of people in his department? Would he do the bare minimum? Would he pad his expense account? If Jesus were a parent, what kind of parent would he be? Which TV shows and video games would he allow in his house? How attentive would he be to his kids' health and homework and friends? How often would he read with them and pray for them? Would he ever threaten to throw them out of the car if they didn't stop fighting in the back seat? <laughs> if Jesus were a high school student, what kind of high schooler would be? How would he treat kids, especially the left out kids? How hard would he study? How hard would he practice? Which parties would he go to? And which conversations would he walk away from? Do you get the idea? 
You say, Jesus isn't here. How do we know what we do if he were here? The word gives some very clear instructions as to what Jesus would do. What it looks like to walk as Jesus walked. Real quickly, I give them to you. We'll love as he loved. We'll love as he loved. He said on that night before the crucifixion, new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also love one another. By this all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. Number two, we will forgive as he has forgiven. We will forgive as he has forgiven. He'll forgive everything that's confessed. He even forgives when things are not confessed. You remember his first words from the cross? Father, forgive them. Ephesians 4.32 Be kind and compassionate to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3.13 says, Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Number three, to walk as he walked, we will serve as he served. We will serve as he served. Jesus said in Mark 10.45, I didn't come to serve, I came to be served. In John 20.21, again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. He came to serve as the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. This is a life to be lived. Not under the law. We're called a higher walk. We're called to walk as Jesus walked, to love as Jesus loved, to serve as Jesus served. This is a supernatural life that cannot be lived out without walking in fellowship with him. It can only happen if we make ourselves available to the Holy Spirit. It's impossible to imitate Christ in our own strength. It is impossible to imitate Christ in our own strength. Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. The Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by the faith of Christ who lives in me. Romans chapter 8 verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You have resurrection power living inside of you if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And in Romans chapter 8, we're told to submit to that power, to allow it to flow through us. Ephesians 5.8 says, Do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Be under the influence of the Spirit. Walk in the light. Walk in fellowship. Walk the way that Jesus walked. Being filled with the Spirit is a matter of submission to His will. As I've been reading these first two chapters, in fact, into the third chapter, my mind keeps going back to the book of Judges. 
Paul said what's written in the Old Testament, the examples of those, they're examples for us, for us to learn what to do and what not to do. In chapter 13 of Judges, we read the story of a couple who were childless. The Israelites have now been under the um, Philistine uh, oppression for 40 years because of their disobedience to God. The book of Judges, that's a cycle they go through, and they walk away from God. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes, and God brings another nation to bring oppression on them, and then God brings a judge to set them free, to bring them back to center. And God comes to this couple, uh, this man Manoah and his wife in the city of Dora, the tribe of Dan. And the angel says to the Lord, God is going to bless you. You're going to have a child. It's going to be a special child. He's going to be a Nazarite, dedicated to serve the Lord and lead deliverance from the hand of the Philistines. Now, according to, to Moses' law, anyone could be a, a Nazarite for a period of time. You could set a time, and I'm going to do this vow as a Nazarite before God. And there was at least three things that you would do as a Nazarite. First of all was abstinence from anything that grew on, on the vine. No strong drink, no grapes, no grape jelly, no, nothing off the vine, especially no strong drink. They were not to cut their hair until their vow was up. And they were not to touch any dead thing that would make them unclean. In order to get clean again, they have to go through this prescribed ritual for cleansing, offer the proper sacrifice. The angel said to this woman, we don't even know her name, I don't want you touching any grapes or anything until this child is born. No, no, no wine. And when he's born, he's not to touch the wine, he's not to cut his hair, not to touch a dead object. Samson was born. You all know the story of Samson. He was, he was assigned by God to be a Nazarite, not for a period of time, but for all of his life. Because God chose him to be a judge to deliver his people. The story of Samson rivals the present-day superhero movies, except for the fact he doesn't have any special effects, no stuntmen, no trick photography. He really did the feats that the Scripture says he did. There are about ten times that we read in, the, in just four chapters of him doing incredible feats of strength, super strength. That power is the Spirit of God. You read in chapter 13, the last verse, when he becomes mature, becomes a young, strapping young man, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaal. Chapter 14, he's grown up to the point that he sees a beautiful Philistine woman, says to his parents, go get that woman for me. I want her to be my wife, which was in direct disobedience not to the Nazarite vow, but to the children of Israel, not to marry with the other nations, lest they be trapped again in the idolatry. In that same chapter, while going to see this woman that he wants to be his wife, a lion attacks him. It's probably God trying to warn him, you're going the wrong direction. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when this lion attacks him, and he tore it to pieces. It says like it was a goat. 
Sometime later, he's walking the same road, and he sees the carcass, and he hears bees. And he goes and looks closer, and there's a honeycomb inside there, and he reaches in to that dead object and pulls out the honey and takes some home, not telling anybody where he found the honey because it came from a dead object that he was not supposed to touch as a Nazarite. In verse 19 of chapter 14, He's at his wedding reception. He becomes very angry. And you can read this story. And the Spirit of God comes upon him. And he goes and he takes out 30 men. In chapter 15, we read the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And he took the jawbone of a donkey. And with that jawbone of a donkey, he kills a thousand men. When the battle was over, Samson said, God, I'm really thirsty. You gave me this power to do that. I'm really thirsty. And God opened up a crevice and water came out and he drank. Chapter 16 is the part of the story that's perhaps most familiar. His first marriage did not end well. In fact, his wife ends up being murdered by the Philistines. Because of Samson's actions. But he goes to a city in the Philistine country called Gaza. Gaza. He sees this woman that he becomes very infatuated with. She was not nearly infatuated with him as he was with her. Because she was bought off by the Philistines to seduce him. They said, we'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver... If you could find out the source of his strength. You see, though he had superhuman strength, he looked like a normal Jewish man. They could not figure out. I mean, he was not looking like Schwarzenegger when he was Mr. Universe. He was a normal-looking man. He was more like Popeye. (laughs) Who ate his spinach, and then the muscles came. The Hulk. They, where's your strength come from? They hired her. So she plays this story with him. The reason I'm talking about this is I want you to see how easy it is to be deceived when we compromise our obedience to the Lord. He married a woman that he should not marry, and yet the Spirit of God came upon him. He touched a dead animal that he should not have touched, and yet the Spirit of God came upon him. So what's he beginning to think? Grace covers it all. Delilah went to work. Tell me your source of your great strength. How can you be bound so no one subdue you? He decides to play along. Well, if you get some new bowstrings that have not been dried out, green bowstrings, and get seven of them and, and tie me up with those, I'll be as other men. He lets her tie him up with seven new bowstrings that the Philistines bring to her. She says, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he stands up and flexes and they break like the thread. She cries. I still don't know your secret. 
Samson got away with it again because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him when he stood up. He seems to have a brain deficiency. But see, that's the thing about sin. It's deceptive. It's deceptive. And he listens to this woman a second time. Oh, Samson, if you love me, you'll tell me, what's the source of your strength? And he thinks everything's fine. I've got this under control. She seduces him. He says, new ropes. New ropes, ropes that have never been used. Tie me up. She ties him up. The Philistines are coming. Until he stands up again and flexes and the ropes break like they're merely thread. And the Philistines flee. She's getting a little more serious with her seduction. And so he comes up with another con concocted story. If you weave the seven locks of my hair into your weaving loom and put the pin in, I'll be like other men. Go to sleep here and in my lap and she weaves his hair into that loom and then the Philistines are upon you and you'd think by the second time you would have figured it out but the Philistines are upon you he stands up he pulls out the pin pulls out the locks and the strength is there and they flee he got away with it again the spirit of God was still on him remember we started out with the command Sin not. The temptation today is to believe that grace covers everything. It doesn't matter what I do. The Gnostics said it in another form. The people that John is writing against. He said, your flesh is beyond redemption. It doesn't matter how you live. John wants us to know, if you love Jesus, you'll express that love by obeying his commands. Not to get saved, but because you're saved, you're going to love him. And you're going to obey him. Delilah did not give up. She needed, she wanted the 1,100 pieces of silver. She accused him of not loving her. As if she loved him. The scripture says she nagged him for days. And finally he told the truth. I have been a Nazarite from birth. A razor has never touched my head. If you shave my head... I will be like other men. Now it's my belief he did not believe that last line. It's my belief that he believed I could shave my head and everything's going to be okay because I've touched the dead animal. I've married a Gentile woman that I should not have married. I've done all of these things. I've, and I've gotten away with it. Delilah said, why don't you just go to sleep here? in my lap. Remember, there's seduction going on all through this story. She calls in a barber. He must have been some sleeper. <laughs> Shaves his head. Verse 20 of Judges 16 says this, And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. 
What a tragic, tragic sentence. He did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. Why is that story in the Bible? So we learn from his mistakes. So when we read 1 John, we take it serious. We're not saved by works. We are saved by grace through faith. But the proof of my salvation, the proof that I'm walking in grace is the way I live. We walk as Jesus lived in submission and obedience. Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Samson, man of superhuman strength, ended up doing women's work. It was the women who ground with the bowl and pistol. They ground. That was the mill they talked about in prison. But the story doesn't end there, thank God. The story fits in with what John teaches us. If we confess, if we repent, there's forgiveness. Because we have an advocate with the Father. One day the Philistines, they throw this huge party to celebrate the demise of Samson himself. At this party, they're giving glory to their god, Dagon, for making it happen. And they made the mistake of bringing Samson from his cell in the prison and placing him between two pillars to entertain them. Now, I don't know what kind of entertainment was taking place, but it was repeated several times in that chapter. They had a young man lead this blind man who had been their number one nemesis who had killed already thousands of them. He led him and, and he says to the young man, would you lean me up against the main pillars here? I, I just want to lean up against them. There were 3,000 men and women in the house that day watching this former superhero while he entertained them. Verse 28 of chapter 16, Then Samson called to the Lord and said, O oh Lord God, please remember me and please strengthen me only this once, O oh God, that I may be avenged of the Philistine for my two eyes. And Samson grasped the two middle, middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the lords, upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. I took the time to rehearse that story before you recall it. For all of us who've messed up, and our sins caught up with us, just like they did with Samson. You see, it seems to me the scripture says we reap what we sow. But the good news is Jesus paid for those sins. 
whatever they may have been, there's forgiveness when I repent and confess. Do you know that Samson, the man seduced and deceived by Delilah, is mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 with the heroes of faith, along with King David, adulterer, murderer, but a man who repented and was forgiven. And God called him a man after his own heart. I asked the Lord to give me a tidy wrap-up to this message, and I'm not really feeling a tidy one, but I'm feeling concerned this morning about individuals who can relate the story of Samson. I'm concerned about those who are living in a prison of, of condemnation and guilt, believing that God, not even God, can forgive for something that they did when. I want you to know that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. To take that ledger and take all of our sins and put it on Jesus' account and take Jesus' account of righteousness and put it on your account so you stand before God totally forgiven. The second individual that my heart is concerned about this morning is those who've been sucked into a temptation to do something that they know for them is a sin. And once started out just, oh, just this once, and nothing bad happened, has become a habit or an addiction, and it seems that it cannot be broken. And the amazing thing is, most people don't know what's going on in your life. Only you do. The Holy Spirit wants you to know there's a place of freedom today. A place to be set free. A place to be forgiven. To find grace that will set you free. To walk as Jesus walked. All that's required is being honest with yourself, being honest with God, and say, Lord, if there's any wicked ways in me, search my heart. I want to stand and sing a prayer, then we'll close in prayer. Lord, I give you my heart. I give you my soul.